Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor. I've been a professor of philosophy. Did that years ago. Taught in Boston at a, uh, at a college there. And uh, I've been a uh, real estate investor and a home improvement contractor and writer. So that's a little bit about me. Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I've also written a few things. All right, Tom. Uh, Tom Price, uh, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places, and uh, am about to be getting something uh, written that I've had going for a long time. That's great. Yeah, in fact, that's a good segue to talk about the, the, the big gift we got. We got a, we got a, a pledge uh, of a significant um, amount of money to help underwrite certain things we want to do. One of those things was underwriting a book that Tom's been working on. And so that's going to be a big help to getting that actually in a book form and out and available for folks in podcast land to read. And then uh, the book Man of the House that I wrote is going to be turned into an audio book that's going to be funded by that gift. But the big thing that we're excited about is the podcast roadshow. The Theology Pugcast is going on the road. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen uh, because, after all, the entire world is, on, you know, sort of on hold until this, uh, this uh, coronavirus thing is behind us. So maybe in about a decade, we'll get this done. <laughs> and we'll be out on the road. And, and what's really going to be fun is we want to finish it up. We want to end the road show in Oxford and have a live audience at the uh, Eagle and Child, the Burden Baby, as the Inklings called it, and uh, the host of the evening for that evening will be none other than our own Tom Price. Anyway, <laughs> so we're excited about that. But if you want to be a host city, if you have a pub that uh, you think would be a great location for us to have the show, and you've got some folks that you think would love to be a part of the audience for a live recording of the podcast, let us know. By the way, we also have a website that should be up by the time this show posts, and uh, it's been in beta. You know how that is, you know, all you techies, that means we've been trying to make sure everything is right with it. But it's looking good, and we think that it'll be up by the time this show posts. And that is at, you guessed it, theologypugcast.com. I believe that's what it is. It may be thetheologypugcast.com. But anyway, it's there, hopefully. Uh, at least it was last time I looked. And it's going to be great. Anyway, uh, today is my day. As you know, podcast fans, uh, we share the responsibility for introducing the topic of the day, and today is my day. And I'd like to uh, talk about something that was published back in 1967 in the journal Science. Yes, I'm going to have us uh, talk about uh, Lynn White Jr.'s notorious, infamous, famous article, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. Anyway, now, if, if you are at all familiar with the debate uh, surrounding uh, the relationship of Christianity to the environment and the role of Christianity's or sort of the, the place of Christianity as it's currently understood in terms of its role in the degradation of the natural order because of things like the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution and all of that, um, you are probably aware of this article. Now, you may never have had the opportunity to read it, but uh, you can read it. It's, uh, I believe, 
uh, uh, available in the form of a PDF right at the uh, science, uh, the journal, the website, the journal science. And I think that if you have never downloaded anything there before, you get like one free download. It's one of those things. And you could go there and look up this article uh, by uh, Lynn uh, White Jr. And, uh, and read it for yourself. Now, you know, ironically, uh, Lynn White Jr. was not a scientist. He's publishing in the journal Science, but he's actually an historian. He's one of your colleagues, Glenn. He's <laughs> one of your guys. And he, he, published this, he published this article. Now, let, let me just give you a little bit of a... Of a uh, go ahead. Quick note. He had a wonderful book called Medieval Technology and Social Change. That's the one you should read. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, now actually, in this article, he, you know, one of the things that I think you come away with when you read this is that uh, he is a, he provides a valuable corrective to the idea that the Middle Ages, the medieval world, was uh, anti-intellectual, anti-science, mm-hmm. anti-innovation, you know, sort of hidebound and stuck in its ways, and unthinking. Actually, it was quite the opposite. It was the the medieval world, uh, particularly in the Latin West, was a uh, really a, a, a very fertile. It was very fertile ground for in- innovation and invention. And if it wasn't for uh, you know that period of time between eight hundred AD eight hundred and about AD twelve hundred, maybe thirteen fourteen hundred, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have science. We wouldn't have many of the labor saving devices that we take for granted today. And so, yes, absolutely. Lynn White uh, is not a bad guy. Um, I think that his take is one dimensional, though, when it comes to the ecological crisis. And I think that's one of the things that we want to talk about. But the thing that that people need to realize is that when it comes to the when it comes to the work of apologetics in our in our in our day to day, too many of us kind of live in kind of the Josh McDowell sort of 1950s, 60s, 70s framework where we're answering questions. So people are asking the question, why is the sky blue? And we're saying two plus two equals four. <laughs> you know, <laughs> our, our responses uh, are not responding to the questions that people are asking. And one of the questions that people are asking is, why is uh, there an echo? You know, why are we why are we so concerned about the environment? What's happened? How did we get here? That's the sort of question that people are asking. That's a kind of that's a question that people are asking. And 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 when when they ask that question, and they look for some kind of historical account, they come across Lynn White's famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, essay, the historical roots of the ecological crisis. Now, if you're if you're wondering why do all the people who uh, you know commiserate, worry about, wring their hands about the environment. Why, why don't they turn to the church or to Christian history or to the, Christian theology for guidance? Well, I think the, in part, the reason can be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Lynn White can be fingered here as, as part of the reason why they don't, or a reason why they don't. Um, because what he essentially says is that, uh, if it, if it wasn't for the Latin church, meaning Catholicism and Protestantism, we're talking about the church in the West, meaning Italy, Spain, France, Great Britain, Germany, Netherlands, 
Scandinavia, so forth. Anything, any, anywhere where Latin was the language of worship was used liturgically as opposed to Greek. You're going to have, um, you know, you, you, you're, going to, you're going to have the Western church. And it's that expression of Christianity uh, that Lynn White says is the problem. Now, one of the things I think that we need to get over uh, is the idea that, as I already noted, the Middle Ages, the medieval world was this benighted period of time where no one was interested in anything that wasn't, you know, sort of uh, an explication of the tradition. There was no innovation or anything like that. Exactly the opposite was the case. And, and one of the things that this essay does is demonstrate that, I think, beyond doubt. Um, the reason why, as I noted already, we have so many marvelous inventions and we have the sort of the scientific frame of mind, or the, the, even the project that we call modern science, is because of some things that occurred in the West. Now, um, what I'd like to do is uh, read a little bit from the essay. But before I do that, I know I've said a bunch of stuff and you guys are probably chomping at the bit to say something about Lynn White or about this whole thing or this whole problem. Because, you know, I think that many of us, uh, you know, are still sort of living with the kind of the, I don't know, the aftertaste of the Enlightenment's critique of, of the Western church and Christianity in which it was blamed uh, for holding back progress. Yeah. And now here we have Lynn White saying, no, no, exactly the opposite was the case. Uh, Christianity is the thing that provided the impetus for what we now know as progress. And that, according to Lynn White, is precisely the problem. In other words, in other words, Christianity was blamed before and Christianity is blamed again. It just, the, the, the problem is different. <laughs> we just keep getting blamed. Anyway, any, any thoughts about that? Um, I, um, in terms of just sort of rehabilitating the Middle Ages, I have a quick set of things that I uh, use in some of my uh, presentations on inventions that come from the Middle Ages. Yeah. And I'm going to read you the list I've got here. <laughs> okay, please, please do. Okay, the heavy-wheeled plow, which enables you to plow in heavy clay soils rather than the scratch plow that the Romans used, where you basically only could work in sandy soils. The horseshoe, the horse collar, the scythe rather than the sickle, the blast furnace, the suction pump, the grinding wheel, wheelbarrows, horizontal looms, uh, ships like the cog and the carrack, uh, the compass, which really came in from China. Uh, the hourglass, the mechanical clock, eyeglasses. By the 1300s, they had eyeglasses. Mm. Soap, the wine press. Mm. This is just a handful of them. You know, we can talk about all kinds of advances in metallurgy. We can talk about plate armor. We can talk about on and on and on here. And the thing that's interesting about that list is an Indian philosopher named Vishal Mangalwadi commented that the difference between Western technologies, meaning the Latin West that we've been talking about, and technologies in other parts of the world, is that, for example, the Chinese had technologies way, way advanced of the Europeans, so they were still banging rocks together. But the difference is that the in the West, the technologies developed in such a way to make the work of the common worker more productive, more fruitful. And the reason for that is a biblical worldview that says that work is something that is intrinsically worthwhile. God is a worker, therefore work is good. 
you know, yeah, um, Genesis 2.1 says God ceased from all of his labors. Well, if God's a laborer, you can't argue that work is, is, is evil. But drudgery is bad. So what you need to do is to find ways to eliminate drudgery. That leads to a virtual industrial revolution in the Middle Ages built around making work more productive for the average worker. You know, uh, White gets into this, as you know, in the article. Let me just read a, a passage that addresses this. And this is one of those places where the sort of the, you know, the, the, sort of, the air of a sort of condescension and, and you get a sense of sort of the kind of the, the legacy of, of the aristocracy as it sort of still kind of permeates academe <laughs> in these statements. Let, so let me read this. This is from... This is on page uh, 1204 on the left-hand side near the bottom. So, you know, Glenn and Tom, I know you've got the same uh, copy uh, of the article. So that just is to help you find it. As a beginning, we should try to clarify our thinking, I'm reading now, by looking in some historical depth at the presupposition that science, uh, that underlie modern technology and science. Science was traditionally aristocratic, speculative, intellectual and intent, technology, was lower class, empirical, action-oriented. The quite sudden fusion of these two towards the middle of the 19th century is surely related to, a slight, uh, to the slightly prior and contemporary democratic revolutions in which, by reducing social barriers, tended to assert a functional unity of brain and hand. Our eco ecological crisis is the product of an emerging, entirely novel democratic culture. Now we know that there's a biblical worldview underlying that development, but you know he's approaching that from another angle. That the and, and he sees it as a problem. In other words, he 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 you know I can't help but but you know, sort of smell the air of a kind of uh, wistful longing in this in the in that paragraph for the good old days when you know aristocrats would sit around and talk about you know what they were doing in their spare time and you know with chemicals in their basements <laughs> you know what i'm saying this that that's what he's describing here you know it's is, is the is the the good old days when infant mortality was over 50 percent <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right that's right but but at least the peasants knew their place. <laughs> Those days, the peasants knew their place. Now they're uppity, and they expect they expect lunch off. Can you believe it? They expect they expect to be able to take a little time for lunch. But anyway, so that gets to that. Yeah, is there anything you want to say uh, to, uh, about any of this talk? Yeah, um, I mean, one of the the things that's important to keep in mind, and you, you see this all the time. These these. Um, large-scale generalizations. Um, and I know all academic work does that to some degree. I mean, you're trying to manage oftentimes a huge amount of material and bring it down to some kind of meaningful way of relating key points to people. Um, but one of the things that's going on here is kind of what he means by Christianity and what he, he locates it. I know theologians spend a lot of time, and most of the time they even come away saying, you know, like Stanley Hauerwas scratching his head saying, I still don't fully know what this is all about. <laughs> um, so it's funny how these people all of a sudden can, can locate what it, they exactly mean by Christianity. Um, that's not to say there aren't marks uh, of, of being Christian, but uh, white is not on to them. Um, but one of the things that is, I think, difficult for a lot of people um, when trying to interpret 
the first birth pangs of modernity and the enlightenment is because it does burst out of their innovations that are happening within Christianity. And so Christianity still is the climate of, of opinion, if you will, or, or that, you know, it's the, it, it's, it's the environment in which these innovations are taking shape, but they are innovations away from classical Christianity. There are innovations in understanding God, the, the, shifts, the, the shifts that are happening. Um, there are innovations, therefore, in relationship to how we understand creation, kind, universals, and, and individuals, the human being. Um, innovations in all these things, the innovations of the human self in relationship to the world. I mean, this is what we get specifically with Descartes later down the road. Um, and so you have this, even though it's cloaked still in a lot of the, the uh, leftovers, if you will, the vestiges of Christianity, um, nevertheless, they're innovations that are working with some Christian assumptions, but they're bringing in innovation. So, for example, when you have the notion of the human being to, to have um, a significance as, as a sort of, um, have, to have dominance over creation, this means something very different as the Enlightenment takes off, the early Enlightenment, where it does start to become the human being through its reason is able to bring mastery onto the world and even exploit it for its own, for its own um, yeah, interest. And that, that, yeah, and, that, and that's really the heart of it. What, yeah. what White is uh, uh, directing his ire toward mm -hmm. is the doctrine of dominion. The idea that human beings are made in the image of God and that the world is uh, drained of its uh, significance and uh, the spiritual sort of uh, presence that uh, it had been known or believed to, to possess in a wide range of, you know, religious and uh, theological in environments. So... <clears throat> What he's what he's what he's doing is he's saying, okay, it's not religion that's the problem. It's and it's not even Christianity per se because yeah. he 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 does give uh, you know the the Greek Church a pass. In fact, let, yeah. let me read something here uh, that uh, I think is worth is worth uh, thinking about. He says uh, he says one thing is so certain that it seems stupid to verbalize it. Both modern technology and modern science are distinctly Occidental, in other words, Western. Um, and now he uh, goes into a, uh, I think a fairly, well, he does what, what, what uh, Glenn just did. He provides some, some, uh, some uh, data to support that assertion. He says uh, here a little further down, the leadership of the West, both in technology and in science, is far older than the so-called scientific revolution of the 17th century and the so-called industrial revolution of the 18th century. By the way, that's probably news to a lot of folks who are listening. Mm -hmm. um, then let me, let me return to the article. These terms are in fact outmoded and obscure in the true nature of what they try to describe. Significant stages uh, in two long and separate developments. By AD 1000, at the latest, and perhaps feebly as much as 200 years earlier, in other words, AD 800, the West began to apply water power to industrial processes other than milling grain. This was followed in the late 12th century by the harnessing of wind power. From simple beginnings, 
but with remarkable consistency of style, the West rapidly expanded its skills in the development of power machinery, labor-saving devices, and automation. Those who doubt should contemplate that most monumental achievements in the history of automation, the water-driven mechanical clock, which appeared in two forms in the early 14th century, not in craftsmanship, but in basic technological capacity, the Latin West of the late, later Middle Ages far outstripped its elaborate, sophisticated, and aesthetically magnificent sister cultures, Byzantium and Islam. By 1444, the Greek ecclesiastic uh, Bizarion, gone to Italy, wrote a letter to the prince in Greece, to a prince in Greece. He is amazed by the superiority of Western ships, arms, textiles, glass. But above all, he is astonished by the spectacle of water wheels, sawing timbers, and pumping the bellows of blast furnaces. So in other words, we were way ahead of even the Chinese by this time. We were doing things in the West, the Latin West, that uh, would later put us in a position to essentially conquer the world. It was because of these very practical and uh, democratically uh, uh, sort of enjoyed advances uh, in technology that as you noted, Glenn, you know, relieved uh, a lot of pain and suffering and toil uh, with regard to, you know, people who are workers, uh, people who are tradesmen and so forth. It was because of these developments that the West uh, became the leading culture in the world. And, uh, and he says, and I think he's right, that uh, there's something about Western Christianity that is at work in this whole process. And, and I think that, you know, he, he, he attributes it to a preference for morality, to, uh, to intellectual uh, pursuits with, with regard to how the Christian faith is, is uh, understood and practiced in the West as opposed to the East. And, uh, and I think he's got something there, but I think that, the, um, it's the excesses that he seems to uh, over the, throughout the throughout the course of the article. He, it seems as though that once this train has left the depot in you know the the, the, the you know the, the year one thousand or the eleventh century or twelfth century or whatever, there was just no stopping it. And there and consequently, Christianity, Western Christianity, is to blame for you know. Uh, Chernobyl <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Monsanto's uh, poisoning of, uh, you know, Indians in, in India and stuff like that. Yeah, the, the counter argument, um, which I would really have liked to have suggested might do, uh, would, would be to um, actually read what some people are saying about the environment during this period. Mm -hmm. It turns out we have statements. Mm -hmm. Let me read one from the notorious arch heretic and founder of capitalism, John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to have it. We're going to have some. We're going to have some. You know what you should have done? What you should have done? Was you should have, should have read the statement and said, "Who said this?" And then everybody would say, "Saint Francis of Assisi." <laughs> yeah, but no. This, this, this is a commentary by Calvin on Genesis 2.15. Mm -hmm. 
God placing man in the garden. I'll just read the whole thing. Moses now adds that the earth was given to man with this condition that he should occupy himself in its cultivation. Whence it follows that men were created to employ themselves in some work and not to lie down in inactivity and idleness. This labor truly was pleasant and full of delight, entirely exempt from all trouble and weariness. Since, however, God ordained that man should be exercised in the culture of the ground, he condemned in his person all indolent repose. Now, this is the key point. Wherefore, nothing is more contrary to the order of nature than to consume life in eating, drinking, and sleeping, while in the meantime, we propose nothing to ourselves to do. Moses adds that the custody of the garden was given in charge to Adam to show that we possess the things which God has committed to our hands on one condition, that being content with a frugal and modest, moderate use of them, we should take care of what shall remain. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence. But let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Let him so feed on its fruits that he neither dissipates it by luxury nor permits it to be marred or ruined by neglect. Moreover, that this economy and this diligence with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy may flourish among us, let everyone regard himself as the steward of God in all things which he possesses. Then he will neither conduct himself dissolutely nor corrupt by abuse those things which God requires to be preserved. You see, that would just so complicate his argument that uh, it would have prevented him from actually publishing this. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the point is fundamentally simple. God, the world, he put us to work in it and he expects us to steward it, to to handle it properly, to take good care of it, to not be excessive in our our plundering of the environment or anything like that. Calvin's not alone. Right, right. There's an attitude in this period that, that, you know, we are stewards of the ground, but the earth is the Lord's, not ours. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is what I mean is, is the, the, the emphasis on having um, exploitation and indulgence um, is not so. It, it, these these come from innovations that are moving away from Christianity. We've talked about the innovations in the doctrine of God as shifting it to the emphasis on power and dominance. Human beings made similar to God now, therefore, can enact that kind of imposition of meaning, significance, and everything else onto the world and use technology to do it and to bring it basically in conformity to the human um, and for human needs or wants or desires. And I'm not saying every Enlightenment figure wanted to exploit the way, you know, because they at least had certain virtues in place that, that you know, some um, in place. But on the other hand, they have some that we, we wouldn't be appreciative of today. But that those things are not the, the implication of Christianity. <laughs> um, mm. They're not driven by its biblical source in any sense of the word. And none of its key theologians are out there telling people uh, to, the, to this talk of, of dominance in that way. It is always a stewardship and it is always under the, the rule of Christ, which is which is there the unity of creation and the one who affirms everything's goodness and its kind. Um, really, you have to have a certain set of conditions in place to start the exploitation. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, one is you, you have to have an idea of dominance that, that is, is going to do that. But then you have to rid the world of kind of certain, you have to rid the world of biblical kinds or universals so that there is no real meaning to anything um, other than what we give it. And if meaning is arbitrary and imposed, then therefore everything's meaning is ultimately at the end of the day, something that the human beings are the ones who are giving it. So if it's only there to gratify or serve um, the individual or, you know, uh, certain human ends, then there isn't going to be a recognition of the dignity of, of the, the creation and the distinct kinds and their own flourishing um, because one doesn't see them really as anything that holds a moral claim on them. Well, I think that you're, what you, you, I think what you're doing here, Tom, is pointing out the, the, uh, the error in sort of the, the larger framework of his argument. He's, yeah. he, he's, he's failed to uh, properly understand how later developments during the, during the scientific revolution and the industrial mm -hmm. revolution and, and prior to that, you know, the enlightenment or prior to those things, the enlightenment, how those things um, were sort of given uh, free reign, you know, these, 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 uh, these tendencies were given free reign because the constraints or the restraints uh, had been removed. In his yeah. mind, uh, he does he, well. He fails to address um, both. Uh, I think the biblical uh, constraints that were observed uh, throughout the West uh, in terms of you know application of things like Sabbath and uh, and uh, feasts and periods of time when things were given their their rest but also there was a i think uh there's a tendency to uh i think uh romanticize uh kind of the pre-christian past um, yeah there's there's a tendency in his his treatment to say well well in fact let me leave, read read something here from him uh, that get, makes my point. He says, at the, at the level of the common people, this worked out in an interesting way. In antiquity, every tree, every spring, every stream, every hill had sown uh, genius loci or loci, its guardian spirit. These spirits were accessible to men, but were very unlike men. Centaurs, fawns, mermaids show their ambivalence. Before one cut a tree or mined a mountain or dammed a brook, it was important to placate the spirit in charge of that particular situ uh, situation and to keep it placated. By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. So first of all, you know, he's obviously, you know, in the terms, you know, this phrase, feelings of, the feelings of natural objects, he's anthropomorphized something. In other words, there's, there's a kind of pantheistic sort of... Uh, <laughs> sort of uh, frame of mind that he apparently possesses that kind of bubbles to the surface in statements like that. But what he fails to give, I think, adequate attention to is the climate of fear yeah. that people lived in the, the past when they were afraid of trees and mountains and, and mounds and, and, and so forth. It wasn't just that the, the, the world was filled with benevolent spirits that yeah. only got mad at you when you did something you shouldn't do. It, no, you lived 
I mean, it, it, remember that scene in, in Lord of the Rings, you know, in the house <laughs> of Tom Bombadil, when they come through the perilous land, you know, they're surrounded by hostile natural spirits, old man Willow, the other trees of the forest. And when they get into Bombadil's house, you know, what are they told? Don't fear the nightly noises, the tree shadows. Don't fear any of those things. Our ancestors lived with fear, and they also lived uh, subject to powers that they really had a right to exercise authority over. So what, what he's, what he's, what he's yeah. romanticizing here is disease and fear yeah. and toil and suffering and yeah. early death. This is, this is uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, again, uh, back in the days when Dave Bentley Hart wrote good, good stuff. Um, he, he actually had his uh, chapter 11 of his book, Atheist Delusions, has a, it, it basically um, pulls the rug from under this attempt to kind of revive antiquity um, as if it was some kind of uh, noble, you know, uh, context. And, and uh, if you bear with me, I'll read a little bit of a paragraph, but it, it plays right into this. He talks about, he said, the actual story can actually be told differently than whites, in a sense. Um, it is impossible to paint a psychological portrait of a people, a culture, an epic, an immense cross-section of people, but let us try. <laughs> um, but he goes through this whole list. Um, he says that um, over the years, in fact, um, historians and classicists have especially talked about the tragic nature and the morbidity of that, that culture um, prior to Christianity. Um, the fact that misery and despair in which death was contemplated, um, the fear of the occult forces in nature, the religious reliance upon uh, sacrifices of appeasement and impenetration of violence of many sacred practices, um, were, were pretty much universal in, in that whole world. And he talks about the self-torturing um, that people went through, the unrelenting pain and hopelessness. Um, and he ends up basically calling it a world of glorious sadness. So in different, di different to uh, Glenn's talk of Christians who have a militant joy, um, that world was one filled with glorious sadness. <laughs> It well, was, you know, what I, what I think we need is, you know, in response to something like this, the sense I have is that um, many young evangelicals, you know, let's give them credit. Maybe they've got good intentions. They, they wring their hands all the time. They hear someone like, like White and, uh, and, and his critique, and they fail to, to uh, truly assess uh, the, the you know, sort of analyze the arguments they they more or less give too much credit to the to the to the critic, and they fail to give enough credit to our ancestors. What we need is people who can push back and say, you know what, I'm going to speak up for the dead now. You're in you you don't you're not at, you're not doing them justice. You you are lying about what our ancestors were actually facing and what they accomplished. And we have a lot to be grateful for uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, what was accomplished and how, well, you know, I was, as I was thinking about this guy, you know, White wrote this in 1967, probably, you know, he was a historian, you know, working at UCLA, probably wrote this in air-conditioned splendor, you know, as he's sitting in his office, enjoying the, you know, sort of the, the things that we take for granted in the modern world. And... Uh, 
criticizing the people that made those things possible, blaming them for everything that was going wrong in the environment, yeah. you know, in, in terms of our, yeah. our treatment of the environment. Um, it, it, and it, uh, Glenn, you, you go ahead. Well, it, it, the other thing I just want to note is, once again, it's simply bad history. Yeah. Not, not only does he not bother to read what people said about the ecology, he over-romanticizes the virtuous pagan. Yeah. Um, the Sahara Desert was caused by those animists overgrazing. <laughs> the Sahara used to be a grassland. They overgrazed it. That's what caused the, the start of that desert. The Mayan civilization fell because of deforestation, massive amounts of deforestation. These guys were not treating the environment as some sort of pristine thing that they needed to reverence. They used it every bit as much as anybody else does. Now, they, have, they may have done sacrifices to different kinds of gods and things like that, but that didn't stop them from exploiting the land. Yeah, it, that, that was when they said, we're sorry for exploiting the land. Let's uh, sacrifice this guy alive. You know, <laughs> let's rip his heart out right here on this. <laughs> right now. now, now, you know, what 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 really I think uh, we should what happened? You know, when I think about this, I think this is just so easy to refute. Why aren't more people refuting it? Well, I also wonder about why, why aren't people listening when it is refuted? And this gets back to, mm -hmm. you know, a, a problem that we've talked about many times. Uh, you know, when people talk about, you know, back in those benighted Middle Ages, people believed that, you know, the earth was the most important thing in the universe. After all, they thought it was at the center. Or they, they all believed that the world was flat. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times you tell these people, no, that's not what people thought. Let me explain to you how they really understood things. It doesn't matter how many times you do that or how many documents you produce and present yeah. to them. They just continue to believe things that were not true. And my, my, my conviction is, is they want to believe the things that are not true. And they don't want to believe the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the very convictions about the value of the natural world that this guy, White, is celebrating and trying to promote, they owe their origin, uh, their origins to the Christian faith. You know, that's well, it, that's one of the things he doesn't explore. Why well, do I care about yes, any of this? Stuff? Yes, that's what I, I remember. Rowan Williams once asked um, uh, Richard Dawkins. He says, "Why is he so absolutely in love with nature?" <laughs> <laughs> right, he said, right. "Where where is that where is that love coming from?" I mean, you know that. I mean, really, there, there there's a certain relationship to it that it isn't necessarily a given on the surface. Um, exploiting it in terms of our fallenness makes a lot more sense. So to actually care and cultivate and, and see it as a place of wonder already assumes um, a set of things that are stepping you away from from what in the fallen world is a given. Um, you're you're looking you're already pointing to something that that uh, that requires an explanation, and that's that's similar. Um, you know, yeah, this is another part of the complication that, and I, I'm going to talk as white more as a, as a, as a modernist than a postmodernist, but this is one of the things is they, they, they don't realize that their whole value system was so invested with Christian assumption, um, all the while cutting the, 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 you know, basically sawing the limb off of the tree. And this is what gave them postmodernity. 
um, is is the fact that you know Nietzsche's whole point is is you can't have that tree if you're being honest. So you might as well keep cutting. But when you do, you don't get other than just as a like you said a willful commitment um, that that is just. You know, it's you preferring that there be a creation to value versus not. Postmodernity has no, nothing inherent within its set of assumptions and beliefs and commitments to, to have them value the environment, other than just maybe out of securing their existence or something existential. Um, it, it, it is not something that, that can be, can be, um, drawn out of its sets of assumptions, if it has any coherent set of assumptions, um, any of the moral causes. I mean, one of the things you see shift with, I mean, early postmoderns for which the new radical postmoderns that are, that are social justice warriors and environmental, you know, uh, religiously environmentalists, um, they saw that the early postmoderns, because they became basically indifferent, so they said they were a bunch, they, they could be, you know, Derrida could be because he's white, privileged, and he could be indifferent about, um, he, you know, everybody has their own narratives and it doesn't mean anything. Um, so the people that didn't have the same privilege said, well, this doesn't deal with us feeling threatened by those that do. So we got to absolutize it. So we'll take postmodernity to dismantle modernity. <laughs> um, but then we're going to create an arbitrary set of our, uh, you know, absolutes to, to privilege our, our cause. And so environmentalism is one of these. It's, yeah, they care about the environment. Um, but why? Well, that's the point. I mean, yeah. if they were, if they, if we're talking about being uh, consistent, if we're, if, we're, if we're saying this is just simply one set of arbitrary commitments against another, why yeah. should I, why should I listen to anything you have to say? Why don't I just go ahead and say, okay, fine, I'm a white supremacist, I win. I'm going to just be very intentional about that from now on. I'm just going to pursue that, and and you know you you know. You, you already told me it's, it's a, a woman's thing or a black thing. I wouldn't understand. Fine. I don't understand. Well, you don't understand what it's like to be me either. And I'm just going to pursue my thing. And just too bad for you. And see, that's why they had to move to, that's why they had to move to militant absolutism because of their fear of that very Nietzschean right. thing. Right. Is, and by the way, we've been there before. I mean, yeah. the Assyrians, yeah. the Assyrians would do that kind of stuff to you. <laughs> The, 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 there is a coherence to the whole thing. It's, I mean, it's irrational in a lot of ways, but it does hang together because it, it's built fundamentally what we're dealing with when we're dealing with modern environmental absolutists. We're really dealing with another version of critical theory, which divides the world up into the oppressors and the oppressed. The industrialized world is the oppressors of the environment. Their realized yeah. world is evil. The environment is good. And in the name of liberating the environment, we have to do whatever it takes to dismantle the industrialized world, capitalism and everything else. That then ties into their economic warfare theories. It ties into their racial theories. It ties into, well, pretty much all of them. They all tie together. It's built around this idea of oppression. And, and oddly enough, Lynn White is a precursor to this, even though he's a hardcore modernist. And one of the things I think is worth, I, I, I tried to tell this with the, the group I'm working with now with the, in the class with the, uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, is what you have going on 
is really a war between modern, you know, it, it, the, 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 the kind of modernists and the, and the, the radical postmodernists, uh, two sets of absolutists. And the problem is Christianity gets sucked into polarizing itself within this, these, these sets of alternatives when Christianity actually is a tertium quid in this situation. It actually has something very different. It does affirm the, the, you know, things that that both sides, in many ways, would would would, uh, would hold well, dear. Well, and well, the reason it's the third thing that Tertian yeah. quid is because it was the first thing. Yeah, in other words, yeah these, these things are are, are her heretical, and they're yes. they're uh, you know derivative. They they've spun out of the Christian faith. That's right. They they have enough of the Christian faith to still have some moral force but not enough of the Christian faith to yeah. be workable. So that's right. the thing. Let's yeah. see you guys make it work. Let's see yeah. you actually make the stupid idea that you've got work. You know, one of the things, having some background in this kind of, you know, thing with regard to my, my time in urban ministry and working, you know, with a lot of the folks that would, you know, really bought into the stuff on the ground is they really don't know how to get anything done. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean that literally. I mean, they just they just don't know how to get things done. Now they know, they know how to, how tear to things organize down. communities. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes and no. <laughs> they know how to organize a bunch of people to 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 cry out for government, you know, largesse, or, uh, you know, or resources or whatever. But they don't actually know how to uh, do anything that would would be useful if there were no government to appeal to, if you get what I'm getting at, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so what you, which, what you need now, this kind of, this actually brings me back to something I want to get uh, sort of, sort of develop uh, or work with a little bit from Lynn's article, because you know, this is wheat and chaff stuff. There are things in Lynn's article that are wheat. There are other things that are chaff and you just need to kind of sort it all out. Um, but one of the things he does is he makes it, I think a valuable distinction between the East and the West. Now, uh, and when I mean by the East and the West, I'm talking about the, the church, East, the Western church and the Eastern church. Now, I would say, I believe, I should, that's a better way to put it, that this has always been the case. There's always been a kind of uh, a preference for the, 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 the workable in the West. And there's always been a preference for the ideal in the East, if you get what my, get my drift. You know, you, you look at the architecture east and west, if you think about Greece, you think about Athens and Rome, you, you can be, you can be uh, I think, um, fooled by the similarities. Um, it was the Romans that gave us the roads. It was the Romans that gave us the aqueducts. It was the Romans who conquered the world, not because uh, they were, you know, you know, they were a phys physically a master race, but because they, they had a, 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 a particular uh, a peculiar preference or, or, or distinguishing preference for what can be actually accomplished, what can be done. Now, to, to this day, we still are astounded by their architectural achievements. You know, Roman concrete, the Parthenon, I mean, the, pan, the Pantheon, it's the Pantheon, right, in Rome, right? Yeah. Parthenon in Greece. And, uh, but, but when you look at that dome, you know, uh, it's just astounding. Uh, but there, there are things about the Romans that, uh, uh, you know, I think have, that, that we still have uh, with us to this day in the West. But let me, let me just read this passage. This is from page two, uh, 1205. 
very end of uh, the third column where he, where he says, and then it goes on to the next page. When one speaks in such sweeping terms, a note of caution is in order. We've been telling him that for a while. Uh, then he goes on to say, Christianity is complex faith. Absolutely right. Uh, and its consequences differ uh, in differing contexts. What I have said may well apply to the medieval West, where in fact technology made spectacular advances. So you would think that there would be praise, but it, of course, what we're talking about when, it, when, we're, when we're thinking about what White is trying to, to say is that's actually damning. <laughs> you know, technological uh, you know, success, uh, advances is something, are things to re be regretted because or to be mourned over or repented of because <laughs> of their ecologically, their, 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 their consequences, the prices that uh, the, the, the environment pays for them, whatever. Now, let me get back to these. But in the Greek East, a highly civilized realm of equal Christian devotion seems to have produced no marked technological innovation after the seventh century when Greek fire was invented. The key to the, con to the contrast may perhaps be found in the difference in, uh, in the tonality of piety and thought which students of comparative theology find between the Greek, uh, between the Greek and the Latin churches. The Greeks believed that sin was intellectual blindness and that salvation was found in illumination, orthodoxy, that is, clear thinking. The Latins, on the other hand, felt that sin was moral evil and that salvation was to be found in right conduct. Eastern theology was intellectualist. Western theology has been voluntarist. The Greek saint contemplates, the Western saint acts. The implications for Christianity for the conquest of nature would emerge more easily in the Western atmosphere. Now, there are certain errors in his assessment. Yeah, yeah. I know that. I know that. You know, it's anybody who's got, you know, some background in theology can see where he's he's erred. But I think that there's still something to what he's saying. There is a kind of, um, I think, disposition that does characterize you know, the West and the East, and, and they are different. And there does, I think, there does uh, happen to be a, uh, a kind of a, uh, a disposition in the West that favors, uh, you know, the, the outworking and practical application of, of uh, you know, Christian doctrine uh, in just you know, the course of everyday life to be enjoyed by everyday people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like I said, I, I, I think he draws it to, like you said, a little too narrowly. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that the East is contemplative and the West isn't. Um, the difference is the kind of contemplative emphasis. I mean, this is why I think Aquinas is so significant in shaping is because he was the one who balanced actual contemplation and, and the, the enactment uh, of you know he, he he could take the Aristotelian dimension with the Platonic, uh, the and, and and fuse fuse that it, it was the breaking of that in many ways that gave us the extremes um, in in the West. Um, but yes, they there was both both were were very much emphasized is that um, to um, let's put it another way to contemplate. Um, is is not something that is um, passive for Aquinas. It's something that is fully, it's the actualization of your freedom as a creaturely being. 
And so contemplation and, and creaturely enactment are two sides of the same thing. And so, so yes, the, the, the bodying forth um, one's, one's life um, and, and, and acting are very central to, to being contemplated. When that gets divided, um, yes, the imposition of will and act become emphasized and, and it's, it's kind of a perversion of, of, of a Christian unity um, that leads to the abuses that become um, utilitarianism, you know, where you're, you're basically, you know, the ends justify the mean. If, if, you, if you can make this work for my betterment and my f- future, you know, um, good, therefore, I mean, this is what Roger Scruton was on to when he was talking about art and beauty, right? And, and the differences of, of, of buildings. And, you know, there is a functional side to things, but if the functional side is the only thing, it becomes the nasty warehouse at the end of the street. And so that would become something similar to the, what I think um, you could see happens with science when it's severed from um, that fuller picture that uh, even Western Christians held. I I think that looking at the difference between the the Greek and the Latin churches, I think a better better contrast is probably found in the difference between what's technically called cataphatic and apophatic theologies. Um, That is emphasis on God as revealed on the one hand versus emphasis on God as mystery on the other. So the West tends, I think, in their theologies to focus far more on revelation. Um, This is the analytical element of the scholastics. It's uh, the the confessionalization, all of those kinds of things. The East is much more comfortable. I mean, they do some of that. And and it's it's not a complete hermetically sealed thing. Both sides have both. But the Greeks, I think, tend to, the Orthodox world, I think, tends to emphasize the idea of God as mystery, that he is beyond our ability to really understand that um, we, can, we can never know anything about God's essence. We can only know his energies. We uh, can never know the mind of the Father. We can only know the mind of Christ, perhaps. Um, you know, these kinds of things and I think it's that more than the contemplative or uh, activist thing that um, that White talks about. I think it's that that really distinguishes the two. And that is also, I think, an important element in determining the trajectories of the two. Well, we should get to, we should probably start wrapping things up here. Uh, and, and the way I'd like to, to proceed from this point on is, I'd like to think about, okay, you know, what do we propose going forward? Let's say, okay, so we all know uh, because we're told every day in the media that there's a big problem when it comes to the environment. You know, we, whether we're talking about climate change, we're talking about you know uh, species, uh, you know, and, and extinction, and those things. And um, you know, how how do we how do we respond to that? Well, one of the things that Lynn does to his credit or White does to his credit, is uh, he, uh, you know, rather than just saying, well, forget Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, he actually digs uh, into the Christian, in, into Christian history, you know, sort of 
he sort of rummages around in Christian history and identifies what he thinks is a good person to learn from. And that's St. Francis. And he says, uh, you know, St. Francis, you know, you know, brother moon, sister son, or whatever it is, you know, brother, son, sister, moon, whatever, you know, and the, the whole idea of preaching to yeah. creation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the idea is that, you know, the creation has, uh, you know, a, uh, a basis, uh, you could say, I suppose, a right to be uh, that uh, doesn't depend on our use. And I think that's his point. In other words, this is something uh, of value in and of itself. And we don't uh, ascribe value to it. We don't draw value from it or make value uh, you know, with it. Uh, we recognize it as valuable as, you know, as such. And I think that we've already talked about stewardship and how that's implicit in you know, our understandings of stewardship. And I, I think that, you know, that's, that's fair, uh, you know, but I, I wonder if uh, uh, you guys have any any thoughts on how the church ought to proceed and how as we, as, I know, remember Tom, you know, we first met, the very first time we met, yeah, you were actually delivering this. a talk on this very thing. Yeah. So why, why, don't, why don't you start, Tom? What do you think we as Christians should do if, yeah. you know, let's just take the science sort of the the ecologist at the word and say okay they've adequately described the situation we genuinely have a crisis so we're giving them yeah. we're giving them some credit and we're, yeah. we're taking them at their word so how do we respond um yeah a, 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 a couple of steps but before i do i have to say one quick thing it is fun, it's ironic that he picks uh saint francis because it is actually the franciscan line that gives us the voluntarist line that's that right leads, that's right leads to <laughs> the the, the uh right. science is dominating nature which is an irony right. of of history but anyway i appreciate what france saint francis himself was up to in some in some sense of the word um but um, uh, Christianity, again, doesn't need to go to the two, two extremes of romanticizing or, or making a creation such that the human needs to be sacrificed to it. I think that's what's happening with some of the trends. Um, and on the other hand, Christianity shouldn't be uh, found as guilty of, of things, even if it was people in the climate of Christianity as it was undergoing innovations um, that were a part of all that. Francis Bacon would be a figure like that as well, had a lot of Christian assumptions going on, but was very much reading them within innovations that were not um, centrally Christian. Um, and, and, and there's a lot, lot of that history. So what do we do now? Um, well, first and foremost is we draw from our sources, our riches. Um, creation is gift. And that means the, the whole uh, plenitude of every single living thing um, even that little worm whose whole existence is to climb up a hill and get eaten by a bird um, is something that refracts uh, the creator's uh, uh, gift, glory, and love. It's, it's not meaningless in any sense of the word. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, to, to just kind of create a, a generalization of how do you, you're to act a thing. But one thing is we do have a huge responsibility, I think, to cultivate and conserve um, that doesn't mean we have to get caught up in, in, um, and, and the political environment that uh, seeks just merely wealth redistribution and, and reshifts of power. Actually, I think that's getting in the way of actually doing things. I think, for example, Chris, you have a yard. You cultivate your yard. 
everything in it because you care about what you have is is breathing and living and flourishing because of it. Um, merely taking your yard away from you is not going to make you love that yard better, you know. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think we have to we have to think of of very constructive ways um, that address the issue without having to go and fall into the extremes of like Glenn was talking about a little while ago of creating the, the mere oppressor oppression class. Um, we are all on the planet as a good gift, I think. And I think from that, we do have a place to, to actually converse about ways of bringing about the best forms of, of, of um, cultivation of that, conserving of it, and yet recognizing that it's not so sacred that we need to not, I mean, that we have to sac sacrifice ourselves to it um, and, and not uh, benefit from it in any way. I'll, I'll leave it at that. There's a lot more to be said. Actually, I think there's a book to be said at some point <laughs> on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it to you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Glenn, any thoughts? What, what, what should we, where should we go with this? Well, I, I want to start actually at the very beginning. Genesis, what you see happening over the, the, j just big trajectory. God creates the heavens and the earth, and it is formless and empty. So what does God do? Day one, two, and three, he forms the world. Day four, five, six, he fills the world. Then he creates humanity and tells them, gives them dominion over the earth as his image bearers. The two of them go together. That's essentially a stewardship mandate. And then he tells them to reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, fill it and form it. So God starts off this process and then hands it over to us to complete it. That gives us a sense of what it is we are to be doing in the world. We are actually in developing the world. We are carrying out God's mandate to us, and we're working with his stuff. So what that means is we are to develop the resources in the world. It's remarkable when you take a look at what it says about Eden, um, it talks about the trees and how beautiful they are and good for food and all that, but it also tells you about all the mineral resources and things like that that are present. And God says, tend it and protect it. Both are important. We need to tend the earth. We need to develop its resources. We need to bring out its fullest potential, but we also need to be protecting it because it's not ours. It's God's. And so that's, that's the point that we need to keep in mind. That's the fundamental ethic, it seems to me, on environmentalism coming out of Genesis. And I think it's exactly right, because it allows you to say, you know what? We're not going to do something that's going to cause 100 million people to starve, except for the COVID lockdowns, where it's 130 million. We're, you know, we're not, we're, we're not going to do the, the environmental to such a degree that it causes harm. But by the same token, we're not going to be crazy about it. We're not going to just exploit things willy-nilly. Similarly, we are not going to protect the forests by not allowing timber to be cut, not allowing anything to be harvested, and putting out all fires that show up. Because when you do that, you create super fires. You know, yeah. you, you, yeah. there, there's the same policy that balances the two. And it's really based on the ethic out of Genesis. 
Right. Yeah. The, this, the, the reason I went to, to this article, White's article, uh, is actually because of my work in Bombadil. Believe it. Mm. So I'm working on Bombadil and um, I'm thinking about dominion versus domination. And I'm thinking about Tom's relationship to the old forest. And, you know, I'm thinking about all these different things and I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting him to, to the ants and the ant wives and all of the things that are, you know, uh, going on in Fangorn. And, and uh, it was because of that that I said, you know, I, I need to revisit this article by, by White and just to kind of refresh my memory and, and address uh, this basic question, you know, what, what, what does dominion look like? Um, and one of the things that I'm, you know, addressing in my book is a distinction between dominion and domination. And that uh, dominion uh, has a kind of, uh, well, there is a place for us to make our home. So remember with Bombadil, he has a house and he shares a house with his wife, Goldberry. And we're told that when the hobbits arrive at his house, the, the, even the forest is trimmed like a hedge. Mm-hmm. And there's a lawn that's carefully manicured that, uh, swells before them right up to the door of the house. So in other words, there's this manicured cultivated space mm-hmm. that Bombadil and uh, Goldberry live in. And then right beyond that, there is the wild. I mean, it, and it's as wild as you can imagine wilderness being. And so as I was thinking about this kind of curious sort of a, a exercise of dominion, because we're told that everything uh, that, that, you know, that, that Tom is the master and that this is his country. Uh, what, it, what I got to thinking about is um, this whole matter of um, really uh, the distinction between management and rule. Yeah. So a ruler more or less leaves you alone until you uh, break a rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then uh, the ruler intervenes and sets things right. That's what we see with Bombadil at old, with Old Man Willow. And old Man Willow is doing something terribly unnatural. He's eating hobbits. <laughs> and so he, he, he intervenes and he delivers the hobbits and he tells, uh, he reminds the Willow of what his job is. Eat dirt, drink water, go to sleep, be a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Stop eating hobbits. And then, you know, the hobbits go to his house and they enjoy this, this marvelous domestic uh, sphere. Um, I think that what comes to my mind, you know, I'd like to wrap this up with two, uh, you know, biblical standards or laws or, or sort of doctrines. Uh, first being uh, the Sabbath rest that is given to the land. There are times uh, in uh, the uh, sort of the practice of uh, the, uh, you know, a practice of agriculture in Israel where the land is given its rest. There's a sense in which there's a boundary that is reinforced by God, that is established by God, that distinguishes uh, the land from the stewards. So the Israelites are supposed to stop, stop being productive for a period of time, let the land do its thing. Now, we know today that the reason why 
soil is fertile is because there's all kinds of wild stuff going on at a micro microscopic level in the soil. And that's why it's fertile. So there's stuff going on all the time. That's wild. It may not be the old forest, uh, you know, that kind of wild, but it's still wild. In other words, we're not fully uh, capable or responsible of doing all the stuff that needs to go on. Now we can encourage it. We can make sure the conditions are good for it. And I think that's what, you know, giving the land its rest is all about. You know, it's, there, there are times when fields are to be, to, to, to be followed, you know, to just not be used for agriculture. They're just supposed to just sit there and uh, recover from the, the, the work that they've, that they've been put to. And so they're to have their, you know, the fields are to have their Sabbath rest. And then the whole is supposed to have a Sabbath rest. So there, there, there's that idea. Now, another idea is uh, found in Romans chapter eight. Now, Tom, you said that creation is a gift. But there we see in Romans eight, we see Paul tell us that we are a gift yeah. to creation. Yeah. So in other words, creation is not, it doesn't look at, at, at us like some kind of adversary. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It looks at it looks at us and says, "You hold the secret to yeah. our fulfillment, <laughs> the, yes. to, to, to our very life. You know what we yeah. what we were made for. Yeah. So, you know, we are a gift to creation. This is this never occurs to white. This never even That's occurs right. to most Christian environmentalists. Yeah, they they usually think of of human beings merely as a curse, and they, right. they you know, and, and we're again, a blight. I, we're a virus. That's right. Yeah. yeah, we have been given to the world by God, to the creation, to the to the physical creation by God as a gift, and the creation groans, uh, long, you know, because it's longing to see the sons of God revealed. Because when that occurs, something's going to happen that it's longing for. And it, it and it's interesting that it, it uh, in in contra white, it's the Christian. That's the gift, the Christian yeah. humanity, yeah. Um, and, and it, the sons and uh, of God. I mean, that's the that's the language. The the groaning of creation, the waiting for the sons of God to right. to yeah yeah. So what my my my, my conviction is is that, that we need to stop rolling over and uh, we need to no longer take the supine position and we need to stand up and say to the world, you guys who got it completely wrong. Yeah. You're not only misrepresenting our ancestors, you have no clue what the Christian faith is all about, and you have no clue where the world is going. And we're here to tell you, we speak with apostolic authority, this is what's going on. And so we need to push back against the world and stop letting the world dictate to us the terms of what it means to be relevant. We know what's relevant. And we tell the world, this is what's relevant. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably wrap this up. Any, any last thoughts? You know, I've, I've sort of, you know, done my spiel. No, we're all good. I, I, I got one last one. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, um, I mean, I, I think one of the things in, in wrapping up is, is that this is exactly right. Uh, Christians don't need to kind of be uh, labeled, positioned, and then humbly accept that kind of definition. But we're required to speak the truth in love and, and offer actually something. I mean, we have riches that have the answer to everything. We forget that. 
We have riches that have answers to all of, that's why creation is awaiting uh, what the Christian uh, has to say and do. Um, I remember uh, the old Christian folk songwriter, Mark Hurd, if you, if you remember, oh, yeah, wrote, a, wrote, wrote a song, Orphans of God. And I think he wisely said, they've disputed our lineage and they poisoned our roots. Um, and, and, and it's actually time to, to recognize that, A, we're not orphans. <laughs> and secondly, your, your, your disputations and poisonings are not true. And, uh, and until you get us right, um, then, then you're working off a straw man. And, uh, and we actually have something to say. We have something liberating to say. And for the, he- the true healing of creation as it, as it, as it is related to Christ in, in, in God. Yeah, we need, you know, people love to say, you know, what would Jesus do? And then they don't do anything that Jesus did. One of the things <laughs> that Jesus did is when he faced a, a hostile interlocutor who, who asked loaded questions and begged questions with their questions, he would uh, not answer their questions directly. He would reframe the matter and yeah. say, you know what? You don't even know what the question is. The question is, is. it's rabbinical. <laughs> let me, yeah, let rabbinical, me tell you what, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you what the question is. <laughs> this is the question. You answer it. Now, anyway, with that thought, we should wrap up because we've gone a little long. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We, we wish you a happy new year. Because uh, by the time this episode comes out, uh, New Year's will be just uh, around the corner. And we look forward to being with you in the year 2021, which we hope will be a lot better than 2020. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, bye-bye. Bye now.